This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast and CEO of HW Media. For the Housing News Podcast, we aim to bring you executive to executive, CEO to CEO level conversations, talking about the topics and the decisions that are most important to the industry decision makers that drive the housing market forward. Today's episode is not an exception to that rule. We have Carrie Gusmus, the president and CEO of Aslan Home Lending. Carrie founded Aslan four years ago. And in this conversation, we explore the vision for starting this hybrid lending model, what Carrie hopes to build with her team at Aslan and her aspirations for the number of loan originators she recruits and the, the ultimate production volume she's hoping to get to in the path to get there. We talk about technology and marketing and strategy and coaching and mentorship. Carrie is a phenomenal leader and it really shines through in this conversation about the business she is building at Aslan Home Lending. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Housing Wire Woman of Influence, Carrie Gusmus. We may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab, and you can learn all about it. Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin. Well, Carrie, we were, you know, getting ready for the show talking about key topics and themes. And I, I thought I loved your commentary. And like, as, as in the mortgage industry, we think we're, you know, kind of some, something special and like we're different than other industries. But ultimately, we're like, we're all, you know, business operators operating inside of a, a sector that, that has its challenges. How go, go deeper there. How, how do you think about like how mortgage differs from other industries or, or not? Absolutely. Well, and as we were just saying, we talk about, the mortgage industry, as though it's unique, as though it's its own kind of animal, and really, whether it's the tech sector or it's energy, it's manufacturing, it's uh, entertainment, the restaurant industry, we treat mortgage as though we're unique. And really, we're just another industry, and we're, we're cyclical, we have our ups and downs, we don't, sometimes we're attributed with driving more of the economic sector than probably we deserve. 
but I think of the mortgage business is a business and focusing on leadership in the mortgage business is really just the same as focusing on leadership in any, in any market sector. And we need to think more like business owners and business operators and executives than we do like mortgage professionals. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, the industry's performed and behaved a little differently in the last 20 years coming out of the leading up to and coming out of the GFC, but the strong cyclicality, I think does change some, some psychologies. And like, when you look at the tip of the spear with agents and and loan originators roles that, you know, if you go back over multiple decades, um, have been pretty high turnover, especially on the agent side. And right now we're seeing on the loan origination side, which I think deters some operators interest in really investing in people as you kind of see in other in other corporate settings where company tenure and industry tenure might extend out over longer periods. So that's a really great point and it's an interesting point and something that I have thought a lot about because I think if you're going to be successful in our industry that people have to be your primary investment and you think about it so many companies think that the disruptor in the mortgage business is going to be the technology. And to some extent it is, and I don't want to name company names, but people who say, well, look, we just have this motorized arm and it reaches over here and it gets another file and it brings it back and it puts it in front of anybody, an almost wholly unqualified person that just came on the scene and got a license a couple of weeks ago. And that that is going to be the disruptor for our business. But I don't, I don't believe that and I don't operate that way. And I believe that we should be investing in the long-term careers of professionals in the mortgage industry. Just why would it be any different than finance? Why does it have to be so transient? And we've commoditized the actual loan itself to an extent that the margins are now razor thin because the consumer doesn't see any value in what's provided uh, in in our effort to say, hey, we're the fastest, we're the best, we get to the we get to the technology first. I think that we have really diminished our value as financial professionals and people people that are necessary in the transaction. So for for Aslan and from our perspective, we really believe that the human investment, that the investment in the people, is actually the most important investment that we can be making, and it's something that that the industry really needs to think about. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's like the point in the cycle we're at right now, but the convert, like it clear, clearly like efficiency matters. Like the average IMB is lending at a loss right now. Like we, it's not worth being in an industry where you can't originate profitably. So like the topic of efficiency matters, but when every time we get into the topic of efficiency, you start like this term in mortgage pops up of the the mortgage manufacturing process, which is, you know, triggered to me when you said moving point like uh, paperwork or something from point A to point B in this robotic arm that makes that action. It feels kind of like manufacturing. Honestly, I haven't hated the term the mortgage manufacturing process because like other industries, we do need a um a thoughtful, efficient, uh, repeatable process to be able to lend profitably. Um, do you think people play a, like, yeah, let's, let's go deeper there. I mean, do you think like there's a way to be a people centric culture, but still think of like building efficient margin, profitable, uh, mortgage origination processes? So 
there's a place for technology. And I believe that it is not in the place that we have been focusing a lot of the effort. Now there are, there are companies that are focusing on technology to create that efficient and thoughtful process. I love that. I made some notes because that thoughtful, efficient, repetitive process, that's really what we're looking for, but it's, it's implementation to me is at the place where, why don't we have AI scraping data more all the time, consistently, every time in a reliable way. And someone is now a person who can check that over. Whereas we instead have a person after a person after a person after a person. If we have one more person look at it, maybe that person will see something that the other five people that touched it. So if we can focus more on the quality of the people having the interaction with the public and with the consumer, and we can focus on the quality of the people controlling the data, then we can use lower cost means, lower cost technology in places where we don't need to have me and all my fallibility reviewing a bank statement that doesn't need to be done by the loan officer, be done by the setup person, be done by the processor, be done by the underwriter or the pre underwriter, if you have one and then the underwriter and then be done by QC and then be done by post-closing and then potentially be done by an auditor who often come up with different things that they thought were necessary in that process. So while I believe that we need to humanize the industry and we really need to focus on the people investment. I believe that the technology piece can actually eliminate expense and error when we have too many people that are creating the expense and the errors, frankly. What do you what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that 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 checkers checking checkers phrase that was popping up a lot in, in 2018 and 2019. I think the industry is aligned that 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 needs to be eliminated and uh not only for efficiency but also um for helping people achieve their highest and best use as professionals. I, I don't think anybody um ever raised their hand and says they want to be checker number three in the mortgage manufacturing process. Um let's help that person find where they can really contribute and grow professionally and hopefully grow in earnings by finding a role that is the right fit for their skill set. Exactly. Exactly. And we I'm I'm really attempting to use more euphemistic terms than my direct nature typically might allow, but we in many cases we need to eliminate the unskilled or the unqualified people in the process, and there are a lot of them just for demand of bodies, right? But what we saw in these layoffs is if you had 12,000 employees and you could cut that to 6,000, you had a lot of unnecessary people. So that's a, that's a systemic issue in our industry, in other industries, though, too. That's not just the mortgage industry. It's like what space figures out how to operate with the most efficiency. But we have to do it in housing and in mortgage now. We have to do it because it's become, to your point, an unprofitable industry. So who stays 
to run a business upside down. The entire tech sector, that's who. I've never seen so many companies that run in the red. Venture is a is a powerful uh, is a powerful drug, but that mo- that ecosystem has changed a lot recently too. And in tech, there is a um, a very real focus on developing profitable operations or at least profitable unit economics. Something that venture capital enabled, um, and I don't mean negatively. Venture does like enable innovation and enables companies to to spend on dev work that wouldn't be possible if they were charged with bootstrapping innovative technology, which is nearly impossible. Agreed. Absolutely. Agreed. There's not a whole lot of Bill Gates building computers in their garages that we hear about. <laughs> yeah, no, there's still, you know, there's still a few of those fun startup stories, even if they didn't actually start in a garage, it's, it's in vogue to say you started in a garage. So, <laughs> so Gary, you started Aslan in, in 2019. So kind of at a period where we're navigating what I, what I think people were kind of coining as a, as a margin crisis of that time. Um, IMBs were starting to feel the the pain of very high unit production costs. And, um, I think we were probably writing headlines at housing wire all all mbs would survive um that that margin compression and margin pressure of of 2019 and uh and you started a new lending shop so tell us about the decision to start aslan in 2019 absolutely so the decision to start aslan was born of a few different factors one of the factors was seeing the heaviness of the infrastructure in the traditional mortgage banking space and recognizing that that's not a that's not a sustainable model and i i believe that we would all agree now that that's not a sustainable model and i believe it's why we see banks in and out and when we see banks in and out right wells fargo says we're really just going to exit the space except for our bank customers and our cra lending you see chase go from we're one of the top five to we're not really interested in mortgage at all. And then we see other non-bank lenders that also grow and shrink dramatically, just trying to find space and footing or they create margins that just aren't sustainable. So I believe that that heavy infrastructure model, it's a failed or failing model in the environment that we have today. I don't see a resurrection of that model as an efficient way of doing business. I see that a lot of these large, very expensive MBs are going to have to have significant turnaround, whether that's they get turnaround CEOs, they get taken over. We're seeing lots of M&A, obviously. But Aslan was started because I had been with two heavy leadership infrastructure based lenders. And I didn't believe that that model was going to continue to work. And we saw the sales force really demanding more and also demanding not only more in compensation, but demanding more in accountability for what revenue was being used for by their companies. So one of the things that we founded Aslan upon was being a transparent company, as well as being a light executive organization. And that doesn't really mean light in leadership because we're heavy in leadership development. We are focused on um, really leadership without technical authority, but not a heavy executive leadership team, not 
heavy infrastructure as far as buildings and space. And so being able to operate with lower fixed expenses, that was one of the primary focuses of our model. And then our model also was to be able to create an environment where we could be a DDO, a deliberately developmental organization, where we could focus on the growth of our team and that so we are a hybrid, we are broker and we are correspondent. And we believe that's the best way to serve the consumer. That was part of our focus when we when we began Aslan was how do we best serve the consumer? That's our number one focus is we have to best be able to serve the public. How do we serve all of the employees, whether that's loan officers, operations, staff, administrative people? How do we make them the best people? How do we contribute to them becoming the best people so that they can then become the best person in their role? And we just chose to focus resources there where we help people develop their ability to lead themselves as opposed to potentially needing so much executive structure and so much bricks and mortar. So that was just our my thought in going forward and our thought as a leadership team and going forward in 2019, we just saw a brokenness in our industry and I can't change the whole industry and I wasn't in a position to even be able to significantly change organizations where I was located. And so it was just start from the ground up building something that you really think is going to be of value to the public and the consumer. And then also the originator where we're not saying we're going to charge you a 595 fee. We're going to give you nothing. We don't do that, but we're not going to take more than 50% of the revenue on a loan and have 30% adoption of systems and processes and tools that we put in place. We created this hybrid of saying we make money. We're a for-profit organization. And so we make money, but we also can talk with our, anybody in our organization about what do we contribute to them. And our books are open. Our Everybody knows exactly what Aslan keeps and makes and what it goes to. All right, I want to come back to that that cultural element on financial openness, but let's kind of going back to the founding story on Aslan. When you started in 2019, was the strategy to come out the gate uh, as a broker with a correspondent capability? Did you start brokering? How did that funding strategy like initiate and then evolve? So my strategy from the beginning was to build a hybrid company. And the purpose behind a hybrid company was for the protection. There's no plan B. There was no build Aslan. And if that doesn't work, do something else. It was build Aslan and then build Aslan. And so it was more the, the correspondent was more of a defensive strategy. So broker at the time, and I do still believe offers the most flexibility for the consumer. It gives them the most choice. But I have been in the business for 22 years. And so should the mortgage banking and legislative side become really hostile to broker again, then I need to be able to protect my people. And so the hybrid model was actually the strategy was brokerage was offense and correspondent was defense. Because if you put brokerage in harm's way again, I need to be able to have everyone come to work tomorrow. And 
still continue to feed and take care of their families and themselves and each other. And obviously my family is invested in this company. And so that was really the hybrid model was born of looking back and understanding what we have been through before and making sure that we were not in a position that that was going to happen again. I have made friends that are independents that, that, uh, came right in as mortgage bankers, opened their warehouse lines, never brokered. Maybe they have a few broker lines. And to me, that was part of the mistake of the retail mortgage banking environment was to make brokering a hostile situation. I get that it's less profitable because of the um, LO comp rules that in you can't have as big of a margin, but you can't have as big of a margin now, no matter what. Anyway, so offering the public and the loan officers the options that are afforded to them in the broker channel, and then again, offering them the protection of the correspondent channel. What we put on our warehouse now are products that wholesale lenders and correspondents or MBs hold back for their correspondent only relationships. So those might be physician products, or construction products, things that they say, well, no, we don't give these to the wholesale lenders because think about it, we don't have any recourse and no broker is going to sign an agreement that makes that a recourse loan when they neither underwrote it nor funded it. So if we move them to the correspondent channel, now they have some recourse if something goes wrong and that becomes a non-performing loan. And so they make product available. So in having that warehouse available and not using it for our everyday products and programs, we not only were able to use it for our defensive strategy in case there are legislative changes or industry changes, but we've also been able to increase our offense with the use of, of tools that are only available on a correspondent basis. It sounds like an incredibly important tool and strategy if you're taking a a, a realtor and purchase focused origination strategy where you need your referral partners to understand that you can serve the consumer with the best loan product possible, even in those like niche scenarios of physician loans or, or other like investment property loans, which depending on your market might not be quite so niche. So our corporate strategy is get to yes. And that is not a Snake oil salesmen get to yes. That's get to yes for the consumer. That's get to yes for our communities. And that means if it's legal, moral, and ethical, and it's a lending product that's available in the United States, we want to have it. We want to be able to avail ourselves of it. We are intensely purchase focused. That has been from the beginning. I did not want to be a shop that had 100 employees one day, and then the refi boom goes away and you have two. So we have been for purchase focus from the very beginning. We have coached and mentored and trained our loan officers, whether they were seasoned or new, we have trained them for that purchase focus. And as a result, we really have still got highly successful originators who are able to make a living in this environment. They're able, because of the product scope that they have available, they're able to maintain their business throughout the seasons. We have aggressively added states really as quickly as we could add uh, insurance for those states and as quickly as we could get through those states so that the loan officers also can become licensed in other states. They can eliminate the seasonality perhaps of 
someplace that they live. So if they live in Colorado and they can lend in Florida or vice versa, if they live in Florida and they can lend in Colorado or the multitude of states, we'll, we'll end up with probably 40 or 41 when it's all said and done. We're staying away from a few states that we just don't want to write checks every year. If we did something wrong, okay. But if you are just looking for, you do an audit every year just to get a check, we're kind of avoiding those situations because we want to be financially prudent. But our objective is to be purchase focused and that's for sustainability of the organization. It's one thing that we build on what is sustainable and everything else is gravy. And that's the way we talk here. So a loan officer down to that, the loan officer level or the processor level, you build your model on what will sustain you in purchase. And then if you have refis, you you don't ever give up that base, that foundation. So that's a model that is for us. Then I know other organizations, they really talk about it, but then kind of let it go. When the apples start falling from the tree and the basket isn't big enough, they just throw that to the wind. And it was just, we've only been in business since 2019, but we just celebrated our four-year anniversary and we have never let go of that focus. Like that. So you mentioned the loan officers and like a multi-state licensing from a loan officer perspective, are you taking a distributed strategy or is most of the team sitting at HQ in Colorado? Like how are you covering multiple states? So we would have about 50% of our people that are here in Colorado attached to our corporate office. And then the other half are remote. And we are not at all averse to bricks and mortar outside of Colorado. We're actively pursuing other opportunities outside of the state to add to physical locations that people can have uh, as a center of business. But our model has been, we have a great corporate office here. We have several other offices in Colorado. We're mostly just licensed in other states, again, without bricks and mortar, but that's actually something that we're aggressively looking to change right now. What do you think your brick and mortar strategy will look like? And like, how does that relate to the the modern loan originator? I know there's some, you know, differing views out there on, uh, on a completely remote and hybrid and, you know, the, the type of originator or salesperson in any industry who, you know, wants to be in four walls, 40 hours or more a week. I'm curious on your take of what the, the modern originator looks and looks like and desires and how that fits with the Aslan strategy. It's interesting. Thank you for asking that question because our strategy has been our technology. We have focused our technology on what works 100% remote, what allows a loan officer to still protect data while being able to work from a beach, being able to work from their kid's soccer game, being able to work from their home office, being able to drop into a drop-in desk at an Aslan location. But from day one, we had a focus on how do we build an operating platform that allows for complete remote work. What's We started in 2019 and then here comes 2020 and we have COVID. And I was extremely happy that was our focus because everybody did work from home there for a while. We actually had to expand our footprint in our physical space during COVID because people wanted to come in, that people who were centrally located near this office in Denver wanted to come in and they wanted that camaraderie with each other. And so we actually had to take more space during COVID, which was interesting. 
But our philosophy and one that I believe works is more of a hub and spoke. So in Colorado, we have this location at I-25 in Colorado Boulevard. Then we have a small location, very small, more of a drop-in type of location in Loveland, Greeley, Evergreen, Castle Rock. And they're very, very low cost. And they're more designed for a loan officer to go in and just work there when they want to. I don't have a lot of demand for 100% in the office work. And most of what demand there is currently in Denver, they come into the Denver office. But when they want to, they can go to one of these other smaller locations. And that's something that that's what we want to focus on and replicate in other areas. The loan officer's cost share, if they want space beyond what we have that's provided, because thinking, again, we're that hybrid model. You have broker business platforms. They don't give you a place to work at all. So you can work in a preset Aslan location, but let's say you want to have your own location and you want to build your own. Okay, you're going to share in the cost of that space and you receive enough revenue that you can do it. Yeah, I like that kind of a hybrid approach to to funding strategy and a hybrid approach to how you expand regionally and how that impacts originators. I think that's a very fair and incentive driven way to to, to make those choices. Um, last a few weeks ago, we had our Real Trends Gathering of Eagles event, and Dave Licken was was speaking on a on a panel. Because um, uh, so many of these real estate brokers at the Gathering of Eagles are interested in being involved in mortgage in one capacity or another through their own shop or through through a JV or partnership. Dave was talking about the, uh, the current landscape. And I believe if I'm going to get his uh, saying correctly. He said like the, the, the three L's had no value in mortgage lending. That's losses, leases, and lack of liquidity. And, um, and uh, leases really st- stuck out to me in an industry that has um, – both in the real estate brokerage side and the mortgage origination side has leaned pretty heavily on, on brick and mortar to plant a, uh, to, to plant some, a flag in the communities that they do a lot of business in. And, uh, as you see professionals have a change in their desired work location, that strategy has got to shift a little bit and, um, and, and, Hats off to to you and organizations that are, you know, n- not twenty years old, only three or four years old. That you get to uh, t- to go into this lease and brick and mortar strategy, um, taking into account the current market that we work in. Absolutely, and I love that it was talked about there. I think that the people that I run into in the real estate world that want to have anything to do with lending they're trying to expand their ability to earn as well as the margins have thinned in the real estate sector. And so they think, well, if I add lending and don't always understand the losses that are possible when you're coming off of a period of time where even within margins, everyone was making money. And now by and large, most people are losing money. And you talk to people about a JV opportunity that you have to show them numbers that could be in the red. No one is really interested in that. But to the point that just look at the working population and to your point that people want to work differently. They don't necessarily want to go into an office for nine hours a day. They want to be able to have the flexibility of 
working from remote locations, working from home. That's not just, again, that's not just the mortgage industry. When we talk about industry in general, we tend to think, well, we're so different. Really, because I'm reading a lot about it for tech sector, especially that all these folks were told they could go home. And now to bring them back into an office, it's a challenge to get people to move back into an office. Manufacturing jobs, you might have to have people in the plant working on the manufacturing floor, but you don't need to have a leadership team or a sales team that works in a physical location. We can all save significantly. And that was a part of our strategy from the beginning. I describe us as if you think about a company that's really heavy with leases, that's bricks and mortar. That's just big, heavy structure. I think Washington Monument, just giant stones and very heavy. And I think of Aslan and I think of companies like us, not just in the mortgage space, but in other spaces, we are scaffolding. We are the safety and the security of, of some infrastructure, of protections, of compliance, of technology, of pieces that are necessary for you to operate effectively and efficiently and profitably yourself. But then I say, now you can hang shears, you can hang tapestry. Is the wind blowing and it's cold? Well, the company might say, well, we need to hang heavier we're going to hang big rugs right now. We're going to hang tapestries. But other times the breeze is blowing through and the sun is shining and you've got beautiful transparent shears hanging. The structure is there. It is sound and it is solid. It's like the Eiffel Tower. It's beautiful, but there's no stone except in the foundation. And so it's just much lighter, more malleable, more easy to operate financially type of organization. And again, that not just speaking to Aslan, that's speaking to other companies like her. She's a girl, uh, but other companies like her and other companies in other industries that are figuring out how we don't have to have all of this brick and mortar lease laden infrastructure and even companies just buying their own buildings, leasing from themselves, as well as being able to take in other tenants so that they can offset expenses that way. All right. So as we move past kind of the, the physical infrastructure needed to build Aslan, um, let's talk about like kind of the, the tech and services needed to build Aslan. So as I was looking at your company website, I noticed that you're, you built the, the website on lender homepage. Like what else like had to come together from a tech perspective to support the hybrid model that, that you're building and, and were the right tools there. So that is, that has been a significant challenge and I believe it will continue to be a significant challenge. We have a saying that we don't marry technology companies go into these long-term contracts and they find out that it's not exactly what they thought it was going to be. So I will tell you that we have changed our loan operating system three times and we are currently vetting another change. And that's done with an advisory board of our production team to make that decision. But we started with a broker only platform. You could not operate a large, any, any sized organization on that platform, because even their call report was you would export the information and then hand type it into the call report. That's not going to work. It works fine for a mom and pop. And so sometimes, well, always what you start with, what got you here won't get you there, right? So what you start with is not what you end with. And so when we've made these changes, one, it's to 
get closer to what we set as the goal initially. And that was that ability to be mobile and still have that compliance protection of our customers' data and our company data. And so looking at technology and processes and systems, we are constantly on an ongoing basis we are rewriting our systems and our policies, our procedures and our processes. It's one of the great things about being the company at the size that we are and staying true to our North all along because it allows us to continuously check ourselves against the meter. But it's the biggest, it is the biggest challenge. The systems, the processes and the technology there's so much technology available in our space now and figuring out what's best today, but also what's best going forward, what companies are committed to continuing to enhance. I believe the largest uh, LOS in the country is not necessarily as focused on enhancement as they were. I was actually, uh, I was at a Todd Duncan event. I'm probably name dropping way too much 22 years ago when the largest LOS now in the country was really being rolled out and was brand new and was exciting, but is now more operating in the, this is the way we do things and you bolt on to us in the way that we ask you to, which doesn't necessarily mean that that's still the best thing for corporations. It might not be the best thing for consumers and for our communities, the people we're trying to serve. So if we keep that benchmark in mind, that, we need to do what's best for our customers. We need to do what's best for our communities. We need to do what's best for our employees. We're constantly revamping so that we measure ourselves against that on an ongoing basis. But I, if I had a magic wand to say, just show me the best, what is the best? That would be amazing. It's tricky. We've talked a lot at housing wire about how we get the right, like tech coverage, potentially even recommendations, but, every lender operates so differently. There's like a pretty long qualifying process to figure out what's the best for a certain size and scale and funding strategy and culture for, for context where, uh, Aslan right now, like how many folks do you have on like the corporate team that are, what are helping with these like loan operating system transitions versus loan originators? So, our leadership team is, we have four people on our leadership team and we have one additional person. We're really two people, kind of one and a half people on our uh, other transition team. And all of us still wear a lot of hats. And because we are our onboarding team, we are also that tech team and that transition team. This is where it's so important to involve our loan officers to involve the rest of our team, to involve our operations people in not only decisions, I was meeting with one of them this morning and I said, okay, if we make a decision to move forward in this direction, then this board of advisors, these people who really helped shape and form the decision and the direction, you become the cheerleaders as well. We train this group and think of it more as a ripple effect. We train this group intensively and then we begin to train the rest of the group, but it started with this tighter circle and then the next circle and then the next circle out. And that's a model that we can sustain in size. Our objective is 
really only to be at say 300 people. We'd love to be a three to $4 billion organization at that. So we do focus on everyone on Aslan's team is productive. We don't have any, I haven't done a loan this year, loan officers. Yep. And so everyone is timers, right. Um, and so everyone's focused and is productive. And so we believe that we can still maintain this model of if you train 10 and then you start to roll it out from there, even if we have 300, that that's still a sustainable teaching model and leadership model. Because again, we're built on not having a lot of human capital that has to be paid a six figure salary bonuses. Which makes it even more important to have the voice of the user and those technology decisions. One, it'll inform better decision-making, but two, it ensures buy-in once tools are rolled out. And like we've, I've, you know, done it both ways internally at, at, at HW of like picking solutions and rolling them out and then having like the team involved, the users involved with that process. And um, even if the decisions are the same, it goes so much better when people feel buy-in, they're part of the decision-making process. I agree. I agree. I've done the same thing. And where I we've said, this is what we're doing. And it, that it was unpopular and it shouldn't, it didn't have to be. I'll qualify that. It was unpopular and it didn't have to be. It was unpopular because it happened without any input. We're not a democracy, but people do know that they have, that their voice is heard and that they're important and that their feedback is important. And so rolling something out, you get the backlash. Whereas if you do have buy-in from your team and you involve them in the decision-making process, even if you don't make the popular, the most popular decision they still get on board with you. And so again, I think that's true of any organization. It's a tricky part of like this small to mid-sized like company space where like as a operator, you might feel like time is of the essence and little battlefield mindset. Things are changing quickly. Decisions need to be made. Um, you just want to run, run with it. And uh, you, have ex- you have enough experience, right? Gary, you've been in the lending industry for over 20 years. You know which direction you're headed. Um, I, I feel similar in many ways, but uh, man, does it make a, a major difference when you get the team involved at the right time? It's a uh, something Diego, Diego is our COO. Diego and I talk about that quite often of like how when to incorporate team members at what stage and then um, it, ultimately, you know, leadership needs to make the decision that's right for the business. It's not a democracy, but you need to have that buy-in. Yep. You need to have input and input, not even from only the team. I am part of a Vistage yeah. advisory board. There's no one else in the mortgage space in that group, but it is getting input of how other industries handle the same type of situations that we run into, whether that's human resource issues, it's capital constrictions, it's space issues, whatever those, it's technology, all those choices have to be made regardless of the industry. And I get so much from other people in leadership roles with other organizations, but I also connect as often as I can with other presidents and CEOs of small and mid-sized companies in the mortgage space, in the real estate space, in the title space, just surrounding our industry to pick their brain about how they're doing things. What I do know is that I don't know everything and that I want to be better every day. I'm constantly improving, 
we want everyone in our organization to be constantly thinking of improving, you can't do that in a vacuum. So that vacuum can be your own mind or it can be your own organization, but we have to get outside of our organization, not only with other leaders outside of our industry, but we have to be willing to connect with other leaders inside our industry, be not threatened by each other and be willing to collaborate and help and learn from one another. I'm going to follow up with you, Carrie, on that peer group concept. We we ha- we host nine peer groups through Real Trends for of real estate broker owners and MLS and association leaders, and we're thinking about how do we bring that over to like the mortgage and and title side of our our audience. And we haven't figured out the exact right model yet, so I might uh, p- pick your brain on that. It's something that's we, we think like we you know we bring together the industry for events and other other opportunities once a year. How do you do that? How do you create that audience kind of connectivity throughout the year? Which I think you've found in your Vistage and peer group um, peer group uh, involvement. It's a very deliberate action to seek out those people and to build relationships with them. And if there are opportunities to do that through other organizations that I already am a member of or participate with, that's wonderful. It's a lot less laborious when you're not going out and trying to necessarily find them all yourself, but it is really critical. Exactly. And especially when you can find like, you know, relative, like folks of like the same size scale business stage, preferably in like kind of semi non-competitive scenarios, like in different like corners of the U S it's, it's powerful. So Carrie, you mentioned an ambition and strategy of getting to, to three to 400. That's, is that originator or like full corporate size? Three to 400 full corporate size. Okay. And so 300 originators would be the top. All right. So what's the path? Is this like a recruiting heavy strategy? Like how do you, what playbook do you run to achieve that, that vision? It is back to that focus on people, focus on the investment in people. It is a recruiting heavy strategy. It's believing in our model and finding just the people that are right for our model. That isn't everyone. And usually recruiting in the mortgage space is I want everyone and we don't want everyone. Uh, We only want people who truly could be happy and fulfilled and satisfied in our space. So I talk to quite a few people in the retail space who are wanting to come into the broker side. I talked to one gentleman. He did not want to give up anything. He didn't even want to go to one of the organizations that, again, charges $5.95, plus you pay all your tech fees and everything else. He didn't want to pay somebody 25 basis points out of his revenue. He did. He wanted to get away from retail. He didn't want to pay anyone. And I said, you're going to have to do it the hard way and open your own business. There are other people who want to only have that fee split. There are some people who say, I feel more secure staying in retail, even though maybe I'm not as competitive as I could be. My comp's not as much as it could be, but I feel more safe. That's what's known to me. So there's the, there's this whole world of people that are not a fit inside of Aslan, inside of our organization. And so identifying the people that are the right fit, that is, that's just a lot of conversations. That's a lot of connectivity. Our current company Salesforce, as well as our, I was just thinking, I'm like, as really, as well as our staff are heavily involved in recruiting. It's in their best interest. It's like when a house goes for sale on your block, wouldn't you rather have somebody live there that you like? 
So they're significantly involved in referring and recruiting and then just having connectivity. We don't really work with outside recruiters so much because we can't necessarily control the quality. We can, we don't have to have conversations with people, but we really focus on building a system and a process that identifies the candidates that we want to meet based on their productivity. And then we dig deeper into their qualifications. we check their social character. And that's like before we even try to reach out to someone. Have you had any success with rookies or folks from outside the industry? Are you focusing more in on like the professional originator with the track record? No, some of our top originators are new to the industry. They started, I have always been someone who believed in bringing new people. If you think the average loan officer is age 52, we not only have to bring people new to the industry, we have to be willing to bring young people to the industry. So we have some great producers at Aslan that are under 30 that came from outside the business. And we will continue to focus on that. I wrote curriculum Uh, inside of a coaching organization previously for new loan officers. I've had several rookies of the year inside of of a much, much larger organization based on training new people. So we have to have an openness to bringing new people in and not just new to the industry, but folks who are younger, just knowing that that's the demographic one that's buying And two, we have to replace ourselves. We have to be willing to replace ourselves. I do not want to stay in a position beyond my useful life. I don't want to be the one that's not best for the job anymore and holding that spot because I am not willing to give it to someone else. And so we think that way organizationally, and we're always looking and are willing to bring in new people. We have significant assessment tools that we use to see what their probability is of success. And they have homework before they're even allowed to start, but we have brought in new people. Is there anything like that you've been able to identify in terms of like social proof that, you know, somebody new to the industry, you know, that, that 30 or like younger than 30 age range is actually gonna be able to connect with their peers that are going to be those first time home buyers. I feel like that's like, you know, I think something everyone's clued in on, right? Like people like do business with people they know and like, and if you like, you know, are part of that community, you're probably more likely to, uh, to win that business. So like, how do you, how do you test or like kind of screen that, Hey, this 29 year old who's never written a loan before is going to kill it when all of their friends start, um, buying their first homes. Well, one, you give them coaching and mentorship so that they don't make any mistakes on the actual execution of the business. And you make sure that they have the resources around them so that they don't cause harm. That we've, we should be physicians because we really believe do no harm and do the best thing for your client. But they absolutely communicate better with their own demographic. I was not born with a Bluetooth earpiece in my ear and a phone super glued in the palm of my hand. I actually take those out and I put those down. Whereas I look at my own children who are 12 and 13 And I look at the people that work for us that are in their 20s or early 30s and technology is their first language or it's a co-language. It's like they were born, they were born into a multilingual household. And one of those languages was English and the other one was technology. 
it's something that's learned for me. They don't actually even necessarily speak to each other. They're comfortable with the whole process through DM and text message. And that's just, I want to see people. I want to be with people. That's not necessarily the case for them. They want to be accessible and they want to have communication, but they don't necessarily have to do this. They don't have to be face to face with someone. So I, I absolutely wholeheartedly believe that in many cases, the communication is better. The relationship and connection are stronger when we are bringing in those folks again in their 20s that are helping people with their first time purchases or they're helping in some cases they're helping their parents. Their parents are helping them. And so this younger person is helping the family in some way. I think about some of them, I should say they spoke, they were born into multilingual houses because we do have a number of Spanish speaking loan officers and one of them is younger. And so she speaks English, she speaks Spanish, she speaks technology, and she's helping a completely different demographic of Spanish speaking loan officer or a consumer even than the way that their parents purchased homes. So and it's so important that you're building a corporate infrastructure that supports that. I know there's uh, origination shops out there uh, that are dissuading their originators from using text and technology, um, despite the fact that we kind of know that's where the the borrower is. So, um, and I love like talking about the topic of multi-language, not just English and technology, but also Spanish. There's been so much research that Hispanic homeownership is the huge opportunity for for the housing industry and where a big demographic push is going to come from. Some place that are, you know, um, playing a broken record right now, but it's an area our industry really needs to focus on serving. Absolutely. When I was with uh, Cherry Creek, one of the focuses that I had was creating the entire document package, both disclosure and closing in Spanish. It's fine if you can market in Spanish. It's fine if you can send out an application in Spanish, but if you deliver 120 pages in English, I took five years of French, but if you gave me a loan package in French, I will not be able to understand it. Pop pop quiz. How do you say amortization in French? <laughs> right. Amortization. <laughs> um, so that was something that was a focus. And that organization was the size that, that we could focus on it and that we could do it. People couldn't sign it. Because oddly, the agencies only take document packages in English. So you can't say that it's important to serve the Hispanic population if you won't let them execute a document package, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, USDA, in Spanish. You'll only take them executed in English, but we could at least deliver them in both languages so that if they wanted to actually read it after the fact, as we're always saying at closings and things, they were able to do so if they wanted to read it beforehand. So that has been a language that's been important for us to serve. I think it's going to be important to serve more than just the Spanish speaking market as we go forward, but that's at least a start. At one point, I knew all the percentages of what percentage of first-time homebuyers in any market, especially this Western part of the United States, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, California, Washington, Oregon, like what percentage of the population? And in a number of those states, it was approaching 50% or over 50% of the first time home buyers were Spanish speaking. Okay, Carrie. So as we wrap our conversation, I want to look forward 12 to 24 months. We're looking out to 24 and 20, 25. 
where is an outsized, where do you anticipate an outsized amount of your energy is going to go? Like, where are you focusing on that will really move the needle for Aslan, an outsized amount of energy? So I believe that heading into 2024, the most significant amount of energy that I spend will be on growth in both people and in revenue, looking for the opportunities to save. We were predominantly broker. We're also wholesale, but I didn't mention that on the, or on the correspondent size, we cap our revenue at the same as our broker channel to be compliant. So we're dealing with the same amount of revenue, but what are the opportunities that we have to increase our profitability? We can't increase our margin or at least our gross margin. We can really only increase our net and then to grow our people, continue to grow the number of people that we have with quality people, but also continue to grow and develop the people that we have. So again, they can be the best in their roles within our organization, we need them to be at 100% or as close as they can be and be joyful in doing it. And that's my focus in 2024 is just that growth in our people and then our growth in revenue. Carrie, thank you so much for your time and generosity with information. I, I loved hearing about your entrepreneurial journey to date, four years into building Aslan Home Lending. Oh, Clayton, thank you so much for the invitation. It was really been a pleasure to talk with you. And I'd love to connect more on the peer groups in the mortgage space if you really are going to pursue that. Awesome. Got a few follow-ups for you. Okay. All right. Thanks for your contribution to Housing Wire and our housing news audience. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope our audience did as well. Carrie, thank you. Clayton, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas.